The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, Psalms 133 says this, Psalms 133, 1, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. That is a powerful verse, and if you really think about it, uh, how pleasant and wonderful it is when brothers live together in harmony. And the converse of that is also true. How wretched and miserable and agonizing it is when people don't get along. And we live in a world where the number one effect of sin is broken human relationships. Uh, it's significant that uh, the, m- many statistics and research shows that the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field and go home is because of conflict on the field. Right? Not finances, not discouragement over their ministry. Number one is conflict with coworkers. Right? Great news, you know, great news. And you, you, you can kind of look at that and be somewhat horrified. I'm not at all horrified. I'm like, well, of course. Absolutely, that's the way it is. Because we are all sinful people, redeemed by grace, but still you know, under the effects and consequences of sin. And too often our humanness uh, gets in front of our spiritual life in Christ, right? And uh, we butt heads with people and pride and selfishness get in the way, and it leaves fractured, damaged, and broken relationships. Uh, It's significant that among Christian people uh, worldwide, the divorce rate among believers and the divorce rate among unbelievers is almost identical. There there it is. You know, the the consequences uh, and effects of sin in human relationship. And if we know God's grace and if we're growing in Christ, we should grow in our relationship with God, but we should also see reconciliation in our relationships with people. Uh, Not that we should never have broken relationships, but where we get in the way, there's hope through God's grace for restored and reconciled relationships. And this is a great testimony and evidence of that. Um, And it's important... John prays, in John's prayer in John chapter 17, one of the chief things that he prays for for the church, for you and I, he says, I have given them the glory you gave me, Jesus says, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. We are called to oneness in Christ, unity. And part of what it means for us to be the body of Christ is to be, as it says in the Psalms, to live together in harmony, to be one big happy family, to like each other, right? and to live together in peaceful, harmonious relationships. Well, that's what God calls us to, but we know it's not always that simple. Uh, and the story of Jacob really illustrates that well. Uh, let me read... I'm going to actually back up a bit and read some of chapter 32 because the story really begins in chapter 32. Dave uh, shared last week from chapter 32 and we'll kind of finish the story. It's good. He gets, to, he gets to talk about all the problems. I get to have the hopefully happy ending. But let me go back and just read a little bit starting in verse, chapter 32, verse 3. 
Then Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. He told them, Give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I have been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that I will find favor with you. It, to, we need to back the story up even farther, actually, to, to get the whole story. Uh, as Jacob has been abiding, living for 20 years with his uncle Laban outside of the promised land, uh, we, we must remember that the reason he's there is because 20 years earlier, he had ripped off his brother, cheated him blind, uh, disgraced his father, and his brother Esau was more than just a little bit bent out of shape. He was ticked. He was enraged at his little brother, and he had vowed that he was going to kill Jacob as soon as his father died. Mom gets wind of this, and being the kind of micromanager that she is, she says, look, Jacob, you've got to leave. Your brother's going to kill you. You've got to get out of town. Go to my brother Laban and marry one of his daughters, and when it's safe, you can come back. Well, when somebody wants to kill you, when does it become safe, right? <laughs> well, 20 years later, Jacob uh, is on his way back. God's appeared to him and said, Jacob, I want you to return home. 20 years have passed by, and Jacob's not so sure it's safe yet. Uh, Jacob is not so sure that his brother is not still intent on killing him. And Jacob really, as he returns home, he really is forced to confront his past. Maybe for 20 years he's been able to put it off. For 20 years he's been able to ignore or forget uh, what he has done. But now as he travels back and he gets closer and closer and closer to home, the reality of the past just hits him square in the face. And he is forced to confront his past. And uh, he realizes that the truth about him is that he really was just a cheat and a liar. And I think as Jacob takes steps home, as he's walking down this path back towards his father's house, he is reminded of just really what a jerk he was. Uh, he thinks back 20 years before of exactly what he did to his brother. And he is confronted with the reality about himself that he really was not a very nice person. And we, we know from the stories that unfolds that he really has changed quite a bit and he's deeply regretful of the kind of person he was. Uh, the past has that way about it. Uh, the things in our past that are unresolved often come back. Have you ever had that experience where you've had a bad relationship with somebody and things did not end well and you've been able to put distance between you and them and you've been able to separate yourself away but one day at the grocery store you walk around the corner whoosh there they are face to face and you quickly turn around and hope they didn't see you right uh, the the past has a way of coming back and always god in his purpose will force us to confront our past god wants us to re reconcile broken relationships because he's a god of reconciliation and oftentimes, he will remind us. And anytime we seek to move forward with God, if there are unresolved, broken relationships in the past, God will confront us with those things. 
Uh, and I've had, I, don't, I won't give you a story, I have many examples of that in my own life of when I've really prayed and confessed and said, God, I want to follow you and serve you. And God says, yeah, what about this person? It's like, Ugh. And God says, if you have a gift to bring me before you present it, you need, and you know that a brother has something against you, you need to do what? Leave your gift of worship at the altar and go make things right with your brother. Well, certainly that's the experience here for Jacob. Uh, he has to confront uh, Esau. And it's clear that he's fearful for his life, but it's more than that. You really see that he is regretful of his past. And you see that partly by the gift he assembles. He puts together this very elaborate gift of sheep and goats and camels and servants. Uh, it is an excessively generous gift. Uh, and, and the language that he uses is very much that it is about uh, guilt. It is about his own uh, feeling sorry for what he's done. And he is now coming to grips with really how terrible it was what he's done. The size of the gift is really a picture of his regret and the, the guilt, the burden that he feels over the way he treated his brother. Uh, so there's a great deal at stake as he gets closer um, now not only is his own life at stake, but he realizes that if his brother's going to kill him, there's a good chance he would wipe out his whole family as well. And so for many reasons, Jacob is very concerned about this situation and very burdened. So Jacob puts together a plan to pave the way for peace. Uh, and he really wants to be a peacemaker. I believe that he's more than just fearing for his life. He really wants to reconcile with his brother. And you see him taking several steps to do that. First of all, he sends this humble greeting. Uh, and I like the way he addresses this. Your humble servant. He uses language all through chapter 32 and 33 of being a servant. And he addresses Esau over and over again as Lord and Master. Uh, he very much uh, wants to show that he's a different kind of guy. So he sends this humble greeting, seeking grace. And in verse 5, it ends, he says, I'm hoping that I will find favor. The word they use for favor is really a word that can be translated grace or acceptance. And really what, what Jacob is asking for is forgiveness. In his request, he's saying, Esau, I, I'm sending you the, this message. I'm sending you this greeting, hoping that you will have it in you to be gracious toward me to find favor, to show forgiveness. Uh, the, the messengers return after sending the greeting, and it says in, in verse 6 that uh, after delivering the message, the messengers returned and re reported, we met your brother Esau, and he's already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. And at this point, Jacob wets his pants, right? <laughs> An army of 400 men. That can mean one of two things. First of all, it could mean that Esau is thrilled and overjoyed to see his brother, and he's assembling this grand welcome committee of all the important friends and people he knows to celebrate their return and honor his brother. Or it means he's going to kill him, right? And he doesn't want to do it alone. Now, if you're Jacob, which of these options seems more likely? Certainly the second one. And it's interesting, throughout this passage, uh, the narrator never actually says what, what Esau's true intent is. We don't know. We don't know if he set out with 400 men in the beginning because he did intend to kill his brother. 
Uh, we don't know. All we know is what Esau, Esau is like when they meet. Uh, but at this point, uh, as, as Dave shared last week, um, Jacob is panicked, uh, and he he does two things to uh, to vie for peace. The first thing he does is he prays. Uh, good plan. When 400 people are about to kill you off, he prays earnestly. He says, "Oh God, my father." Uh, my, uh, oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you told me to return. Okay, this is your idea, God. You told me this. I'm just being obedient. And you promised me I will treat you kindly. Uh, so he prays on the basis of God's command. He prays on the basis of God's promise. And then he says, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother. So he prays, calls out to God for help. Second thing he does, he puts together this very elaborate gift. Goats, sheep, camels, uh, cows, bulls, donkeys, very elaborate gift, and sends it off in waves to just overwhelm his brother with these gifts of generosity, um, hoping to change his heart. And it says in verse uh, 32, uh, verse 20, it says, Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me. When I see him in person, perhaps he will again show favor to me. Perhaps he will be gracious to me. And the words that are used here are very much words of, of seeking grace, seeking forgiveness, uh, seeking, in a sense, atonement for his sins and his mistakes. Um, to be accepted by his brother. Well, that kind of sets the stage. Okay, so we get to chapter 33, and this is the stage. Uh, Jacob really wants to be reconciled to his brother. Uh, he is a new person. And we see that at the end of chapter 32 as he has a new name. He's no longer called Jacob, which means deceiver, but he's called Israel, one who wrestles with God. Uh, he's a new man. And so chapter 33 says this. After he'd wrestled with God, the, the morning breaks. It's a new day, very poetic visual picture of the new hope that he has. It says, Jacob looked up and he saw Esau coming with his 400 men. Okay, so you just picture this. Here's Jacob. He's done all he can do. He's wrestled. He's prayed. He's sent gifts. He's panicked. He's sweated. He's wet his pants. He hasn't slept all night. He's drank too much coffee. And he's a little on edge, right? He's just a little nervous. Uh, the sun comes up and he looks up and there to the south over this rise comes 400 men riding on donkeys and camels and horses. And you can imagine just the pounding of hooves as this army advances toward you. So again, he uh, uses a technique that he had started in chapter 32. He divides the camp. He says, okay, if they're going to wipe me out, at least if they're divided, we can all flee in different directions. Maybe some will be spared. So he divides the family into groups and the herds into groups. And the moment has come for him to face his brother. And he goes on ahead of uh, his family, it says. And on the way, as the horses race toward him and his own heart is pounding, it says that Jacob bows to the ground seven times. Takes a few steps, stops, bows to the ground. Right? I don't know if he's like passing out. I'm not quite sure what this is about. Stands up, takes a few moments, and bows again. Right? 
very much taking on the attitude and posture of a humble servant. It's interesting, Calvin in his commentary says that he, he thinks he's actually worshiping God. Maybe, I don't know, if he's bowing himself before God or before Esau or both. But he is seeking mercy. He is putting himself, his life and his family's life at the hands of his enemy. He is seeking God's divine intervention and rescue. Uh, he is charging full on into whatever is ahead. How much easier would it have been to not go here, right? How much easier it would have been to decide that, you know, Cuba's a nice place to live. <laughs> you know, Lebanon, Syria, uh, India, I don't know, anywhere but Palestine. But he faces his past, and he steps forward, and the horses all pull up and stop. Esau jumps off his, and it says, uh, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Wow. Amazing. Last thing I'm sure Jacob expected. His brother running towards him, throwing his arm, putting him in a huge bear hug, thrilled to see him, embracing him in a grip of compassion and warmth and grace. A lot of commentators believe that when Jesus describes the return of the prodigal son, he borrows language from this passage. And in many sense, it's very much like the return of the prodigal son. Esau is lovingly embracing his brother. And can you imagine what Jacob must have felt? <laughs> oh, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, for one, I'm not going to die. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> for two, to be loved and welcomed by somebody that hated you. What a gift. What an incredible gift. To know somebody who had the rights to kill you. Somebody who had every reason to hate you. And yet he finds grace with his brother. And his brother clearly is thrilled to see him, overjoyed to see him. And it says they both wept. Great tears of joy. Um, I can just imagine, uh, after all that Jacob has been through, just the relief of knowing he's at peace with his brother. Great picture of reconciliation, of Brothers who live together in harmony. That really ends the story. And uh, there's a few more details in the rest of the chapter. But uh, it's a great picture that for Jacob to come to the place in his life where he was right with God meant that he would also come to a place in his life where he was right with man. That this one big thing in his past that had never been resolved found peace and restoration and redemption through God's grace. Uh, we don't ever know what or why Esau was the way he was. Uh, we don't know if it's like Laban who had been confronted in, as, as Laban was pr pursuing Jacob also, a very similar scene to take back all of his possessions, and was confronted by an angel and warned, don't mess with him. We don't know if Esau had a similar vision. We don't know if over the 20 years Esau just kind of mellowed out and became a father and just became a much more forgiving person. We don't know if he also met God in some profound way that changed his life. We don't know if 
the greetings and the flocks and the gifts and his brother bowing down and just coming with a totally different attitude changed his heart. We don't know why Esau was different. One thing we do know is that clearly it was a work of God. It's very clear that, that Jacob had prayed for this. And going back to uh, Jacob's first meeting and encounter with God at Bethel, God had made it clear that he would take care of Jacob, he would bless Jacob, he would favor Jacob, and he would bring Jacob home safely. So whatever it was, we know that it was ultimately a work of God taking care of Jacob. So we don't know a lot about why Esau is the way he is, but the story gives us a great deal of information about why Jacob is the way he is. And I would like to just leave us with a couple thoughts uh, as we seek to be people who live in harmony, as we seek to be people who find reconciliation in broken relationships, what can we do, what is it that needs to change in us that we would be the kind of people that can live in harmony, that can see broken relationships restored? And let me just highlight a couple things in, in Jacob's life that were changed dramatically. And if you look back 20 years what he was before he went on this little detour until he came home, Jacob was a radically different guy. What had changed in him that had made him so different, that had really fit and suited him to be the kind of guy who would pursue reconciled relationships? Let me give you just a couple things. First of all, he truly was a, a humble guy, unlike the way he was when he left. Right? When he left, he was anything but humble. He was anything but thinking of himself. Uh, here's a guy who was cold and ruthless. And if you remember the story when he uh, first uh, st- stole the first part of the birthright from his brother by bargaining for the lentil bean stew, right? Brother comes back, he's starving, hungry, been out hunting all day, didn't go so well. And uh, Jacob is really quite ruthless in his, and cold-hearted in his approach. Brother says, man, I'm starving. And you know, he's, Jacob says, well, it must be a bad day to be you. Uh, no compassion, no mercy. And he just keeps stirring his pot, his pot of stew, kind of wafting the smell over to his brother. Smell this. He goes, man, I would give anything for that stew. And he says, really? Would you give your birthright? You know, cold, heartless, selfish, right? But now we find this guy who's truly humble. He starts with humble gre- greetings. Uh, he earnestly seeks Esau's forgiveness, which is, in itself is a, is a matter of humility. Understand that he needed grace. Uh, he takes over and over again the position and language of a servant, calling him Lord and Master. He bows before his brother. Uh, he sought to gain first position. You know, he stole his brother's birthright as firstborn. His ambition as a younger man had been to had been to supersede his brother, had been to steal first position from his brother. And in fact, the, if you remember the prophecy about him, was that his brother would bow to him, that the older would bow to the younger. But notice what happens in this story. Jacob is bowing to Esau. Powerful. Here's a guy who had learned true humility. Not only because he was afraid for his life, but he generally was a changed guy. Well, how did this transformation come about? How is it that he had grown to be a truly humble person? Uh, and more importantly, how can we grow in humility? Uh, let me just say a way you can't. 
a lot of people think that humility is trying to convince ourselves that we're not all that great when deep down inside we know we are God's special gift to the world, right? You know, we're, we're, we're pretty well convinced that the world is just so blessed to have us, but we know we're supposed to be humble, so we try to convince ourselves we're not as great as we think we are. But we don't really believe it, right? We're, we're, we're pretty well convinced that, well, I can tell myself this, or at least I can pretend it, you know. I know I'm God's gift to the world, but at least pretend like I'm not. So people say, oh, that was great. And you say, oh, no, it was really nothing. Nothing. <laughs> right? right? You just soak it up. Um, that's not humility. Um, sometimes you take it a step further by playing the I am a worm game. Oh, I'm, really no, I'm really no good at this. I really can't do this. I'm really just a worm. I'm so worthless. Right? And it becomes a way to kind of con people into complimenting you. You know, you're fishing for, oh, you're, you're, you're not that bad. You're, you're really quite good at it. Oh, no, 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 I'm, no, I'm worthless. Okay, that's not also true humility. True humility is the genuine conviction that others are more important. Right? That doesn't mean I'm unimportant. As uh, Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, consider others better than yourselves. It doesn't mean we have to make ourselves a worm. It doesn't mean we have to make ourselves worthless. But it does mean we have to consider that other people really are more important than me. I am not the most important person in the world. In fact, true humility ultimately comes in the knowledge that God is most important. That my life is lived under His will and purpose because ultimately He is the one who is worthy of praise and honor. Everything is to be lived for Him. It's not that I am worthless, but it is true that I am unworthy. We'll see that in a minute in Jacob's life. So how does Jacob come to this? Well, first of all, he's had the wonderful privilege of spending the last 20 years gaining perspective. And basically he's gained perspective by becoming the victim of his own brand of sin. Uh, Jacob was a deceiver. His name means heel grabber, deceiver. Uh, the last thing his brother said to him is, indeed you are a Jacob. You are a deceiver. It is what you are. Right? He flees from his brother. He goes to his uncle Laban. And guess what his other, uh, uncle Laban is? An even bigger deceiver. And he just spent 20 years getting cheated and ripped off by his deceptive, crooked cheat of an uncle. The exact brand of medicine that was uh, Jacob's choice of sin. Right? And it's amazing how it changes your perspective, right? All of a sudden, he's going, wow, it kind of stinks to be on the other end of this. And for 20 years, he felt the pain of what it was like to be used and abused. It's amazing how our perspective changes when we become the recipient of our own sin. Uh, it's It's a true gift of God, actually that he gives us the opportunity to gain that kind of perspective. For me, uh, one of the ways that we can develop this in our own life is to really tune in to the hurt and pain of those around us. To really listen to the stories and agony and hurt of those who have been wounded by sin. Now, I had, I had the wonderful privilege of actually getting paid to do this. 
because for a while I worked as a professional counselor. And people actually paid me to come so I would listen to their pain and wounds. And uh, most of my clients had, were, were uh, ladies, women, moms, uh, a lot of single moms. And hour after hour, they would pay me money so that I could actually learn what a jerk I was. <laughs> and this is kind of how it worked. These ladies would go and they would share about their jerk husbands and all the terrible things they did to them and how they'd been hurt and wounded by men. And I would go, oh, wow, oh, that's, that's bad. That's terrible. Well, deep down inside all the time, I'm going, wow, that's me. <laughs> it's like I, they told me about myself. And I'm trying to be very sympathetic, realizing they were describing me. Right? And I thought, man, I am I'm a horrible person. You know? There's great value in that. There's great value in that. Tune into the pain and woundedness of people around you and then ask yourself, how have I done that to other people? In what ways have I been that kind of person and caused that kind of woundedness in people around us? Uh, Another great gift is when we ourselves are sinned against, and it often hurts when people betray us, when people lie to us, when people uh, backstab, our first reaction is to be angry and to be uh, uh, like Esau, to want to kill them. But we need to step back and say, you know, that's what sin does. Uh, It hurts. And to realize that when I do those exact very same things to other people, it hurts them. It's amazing how much more painful you know, lies are when they're directed towards us than when we speak them, right? Well, we need to get a new perspective of the damaging effects of our sin. And as Jacob had spent those years with Laban, he had come to know the pain, and he speaks often of the pain of being cheated by somebody dear to him, somebody who was a family member who he should have been able to trust. Now Jacob comes back to his brother in a whole new light. And he realizes, I was the family member that should have been trusted. And look what I did to my brother. And I think he went back horrified at what he was. There was something very humbling in that. Very humbling. Uh, Second thing that was true in Jacob's life is he had come to grips with the truth that he didn't deserve it. Right? When he prays to God in chapter 32, I love this. He says, uh, you, know, you, I return to the, you told me return to the, the land of your relatives and you promised me I will treat you kindly. And then verse 10 he says as he's praying to God, he says, God, I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. And he says, I don't, I don't deserve this. Right? As he comes to grips with his own sinfulness, with who he is as a, as a sinful being, he realizes how undeserving he is of the generosity and kindness of God. There is something very humbling about coming to grips with this truth, uh, of realizing I don't deserve any of it. It's interesting, as you talk to people, there, there are basically two groups of people in the world. There are those, if you ask, you know, why, well, you ask people, are you going to go to heaven? 
Almost everybody says yes. I, I really have never had anybody tell me yet, no, I'm going to hell. Everybody says, well, of course. Right? And you ask one group of people why you're going to heaven, and they'll say, because Jesus saved me. Because of the grace of God, I'm going, because it's not what I deserve, but it's what free gift God has given me. There's another whole group of people who say, I'm going to heaven because I am a good person. Because right? I'm good. And they, they say, how could, a, how could a good and loving God send a good person to me like hell? I can't fathom that. So I'm convinced that even though I've, done, I've, I've made a few mistakes, that overall I am a good person. Right? And I somehow deserve it. I deserve heaven. Right? It's ironic. So it's ironic. The people who I believe are going to heaven don't think they deserve it. The people who think they are going to heaven, who I don't think are, say they, they deserve it because they're good. Right? And the problem lies in this. Most people believe that they are inherently good people who have made a few bad choices. You know, they'll admit, yeah, you know, I've, I, I've sinned, I've, I've done things that weren't quite right, but, but it's just a few things that I have done. Overall, I am inherently a good person. I've just done a few bad things. Uh, when I first came to Christ, I pretty much felt the same way. I knew that I needed God's grace, I, knew I needed His forgiveness, but I thought I needed His forgiveness for those few bad things I had done that had somehow disqualified me. And I was mostly a good person, but I had sinned and done some really stupid things, and I those acts, those deeds, had disqualified me, and I just had to kind of clean up those, those few, two or three little problems, and then everything was good, because I was a good person. But as I studied the Word, and as the Holy Spirit worked in my life, and as I came to understand what sin was really all about, I started to realize, oh, the reason I did a few bad things, which the list, the list kept getting longer and longer, by the way, is not because, and the problem isn't just those bad things. The problem is, I am bad. I am sinful. Right? I am inherently messed up big time. Right? And that those things that I see outwardly are just the wellspring of something deep within me that is, that is flawed and wrong. And gradually, God keeps opening up more and more every day. My inherent selfishness that I am quite blind to. My inherent pride that I am quite blind to. And I see that the truth is, I don't deserve it, not because I've done a few bad things, but because I am, in myself, a bad person. Wicked and sinful. Born in sin. Born with a sinful nature. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in, in chapter, Romans chapter 7 which I've gone back and forth, I've, 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 I've debated this passage with myself, uh, a huge tug of war. Is chap, Romans chapter 7 talking about Paul's experience as a believer or before he was a believer, right? Well, for a long time I was pretty convinced that, that he was describing his life before he came to Christ in his wrestle with sin. But once he got saved, he was set free from all that and he no longer wrestled with sin. I've gone back to the other way, okay? Now I believe that he's describing his life both before and after, right? And he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to do it. For I do not uh, do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I 
who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it hard to, uh, so I find it to be a law that I want to do what right, evil lies close at hand. Right? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my spirit, but I see in my members, in my body, in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Right? What is the one thing we have to carry around with us every day that's still not made new in Christ? This body, right? This body. Okay? It's, it's going downhill, right? For me, that means my hair is falling out in some places and growing ten times too much in other places, right? It means it used to be very lovely brown. Now it's turning gray. It means it hurts to get out of bed in the morning, right? It's going downhill. This body is dying every day. It's dying. And it doesn't matter how old you are, you're dying, right? Some of you, it's just going to take longer to get there. Some of you are awfully close, right? <laughs> so you better be careful, right? And you know what? This body is still under sin. We will never be released from this body that is inherently corrupt and sinful until God kills it someday and does what? Gives us a new body. A new body that is no longer filled with sin. And that's why uh, Paul speaks often that we have to wage war against our members. We have to buffet them. We have to make it our slave. We have to master our bodies because it is inherently sinful. Praise God, we now have a new nature. We have a spirit that is in Christ that is alive. We have a new person and being that is filled with life and light, that has a new power and capacity for righteousness and truth and life. But we're dragging around this tent that's rotting and decaying because it's sinful. Uh, Jacob came to this realization, I don't deserve this. I am inherently a sinful, fallen being. And at the core of my being, I don't deserve this. But the amazing thing is, uh, God has been loving and kind to me anyway. Isn't that amazing? He says, you know, I have all this abundant wealth. God has blessed me so abundantly and I realize now that I don't deserve, I don't deserve the tiniest little bit of it. Right? Amazing. That is humbling. Right? The more we understand how unworthy we are and how incredible God's grace is, it is humbling. Right? Last thing that uh, Mark of his life as a humble person is that he had wrestled with God. He'd seen God face to face. Uh, I love this. After he wrestles with God and he goes through this whole deal, it says he names the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Right? Uh, he's a guy who had encountered face to face the very being and presence of God. And, uh, you know, when you... And, and he, you know, he encountered God, and he said, and I lived to tell about it, right? When you come face to face with the almighty, holy, powerful God, and you dwell and stand in his presence, the reality is it does something to you, and the result does not make you proud, right? It, it, it brings you to the place of very, very smallness, right? 
for lack of a better way to describe it, uh, we realize that we're not much compared to the Almighty God. He is holy, and we are nothing before Him. Uh, I had the experience when I was in high school running track and cross country. Uh, I lived in Colorado and very close to Boulder, which is kind of a running mecca. And at that time, uh, Frank Shorter, who was 1972 gold medalist in the marathon in the Olympics, lived in Boulder. And he would come once in a while run with our, our, our team. Which is a pretty cool thing, you know, for a high school kid to get to run with an Olympic marath- gold medal marathoner. He's a great guy, very enthusiastic about running. And talk about, talk about putting you in your place. I mean, here's a guy that at the last miles of a marathon, miles like 24, 25, could clip off a 430 mile. Okay, now if you don't know how fast that is, it's sick how fast it is, right? The, when I coached in Colorado track, the high school state record uh, at our division was four minutes and 30 seconds. Okay, so here's a guy at the end of a marathon could clip off a 430 mile. Okay, it's just sick. Right? It's just sick. Fastest mile I'd ever ran in my life was five minutes. So here's the deal. He'd come run with us, which would mean he would like go like at super slow jog speed, and I'd be running my legs off, <laughs> trying to keep up with him. And he's like, <sighs> okay. If I ever dreamed I was going to be anything great, all I had to do was go run with Frank Shorter, and I knew I was nothing, right? I just wanted to give up. It's like, I'm a snail, I'm a slug, you know. Um, it was very humbling. Well, you know, how much more is that true if we ever really encounter God face to face, right? If we ever think we are anything. If we ever think there is anything about us that commends us to the world or to others or to God, if we encounter him face to face and become the kind of people who wrestle with God, you know, we are nothing. We are nothing. If you want to become a truly humble person, the simple truth is we just need to spend time in God's presence, face to face before him. It is life-transforming. And certainly Jacob, as he had two times encountered God face-to-face, two times he had been in God's presence, once he had wrestled with God, uh, we get in that kind of face-to-face encounter with God, it will change us. And we will become truly humble people. We will have a new capacity for grace uh, with, with other people. Uh, let me just close with this. Uh, Jacob also be, exhibits incredible generosity and compassion toward his brother. Uh, not only is he reconciled, but he really longs to, to bless his brother with this generous gift. Uh, he says, and his brother says, no, you know, I, I have enough. I, I'm wealthy. I don't need it. But Jacob insisted. He says in verse 10, no, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift of mine. Uh, and uh, it is... And seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. It is enough that you have accepted me. Please take this gift I have brought you, for God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. Literally, he says, he says with God I have everything. Right? Um, there's nothing more life-transforming than to really come to own and possess what grace is, right? To really 
Live in God's presence by means of grace. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.